Another episode of Fratello on Air. I'm Mike Stockton, coming to you from Frankfurt, uh, Main, Germany. Hello, and here's Martin Klocke. I'm in Meerbusch near Düsseldorf in Germany. Well, Martin, welcome to uh, to Fratello, and it's been a long time coming us getting together. So I'm glad we could finally find a time to speak and and talk about uh, what I think is a pretty impressive. Uh, let's call it new brand, uh, on the scene, Sherpa watches. Mm -hmm. So very happy to have you here. And we're going to get into a lot of different things today. Um, talk about your brand, how you got into watches and really what makes these, these two watches that you've come out with so special. And I think in my view, very different from a lot of watches, um, on the market today. And especially for those of us who are interested in retro type pieces. So again, very, very happy to have you here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, uh, it has been quite long in, in coming, I know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the, the meetings we had in Frankfurt, I really enjoyed. So yeah, it's time now to do that. Great. 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 So, you know, before we get into it, we have a little bit of a tradition that um, typically I'm here with my uh, with my uh, uh, co-pilot Balash, and uh, we we start off every episode, and you'll like this because uh, both of us are located in Germany. Neither of us are German, but we uh, we tend to have fun with your native language, and sometimes mm -hmm. we directly translate some things. So we start we start off our show. Not a wrist check. We start off with a Hangelenks controller. Yeah. So, <laughs> and uh, brilliant. And, yep. and I'm going to go first, actually, because because your your choice will no doubt provide a proper lead in to uh, you know the main part of the show. But I did come equipped for the discussion. Hmm. I uh, I had two choices today, and I went with uh, one that that you haven't seen before because when I saw you in Frankfurt, I was wearing one of my Anna cars and uh, today I am wearing the other and I think it's actually more appropriate. So I am wearing a Anna car Sherpa Superjet. So oh, very nice choice. Very nice. Yeah. choice. I like that one. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. So for those out there who don't know what this is, um, this is a, well, compressor case, of course. So a dual crown, piece that has a 24 hour inner rotating bezel and a, uh, an extra hand there that basically can be used to track a second time zone. And it is a casemate with the, uh, with, with basically a diving version. And there's, if I'm not mistaken, Martin, and you could correct me on this, there's no real spec difference, I guess, in these watches. Um, it's just more of a, of, of a complication difference, correct? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, one one of the features of of any car and EPSA was the the modularity. 
So basically they had a construction kit for watches <laughs> and they would change, you know, dials, bezels, how how it fits. And um, yeah, so uh, yeah, it's basically a GMT watch, but the same spec as the diving watch. Yeah, which makes it pretty darn robust. And, um, you know, we'll get into Enacar in a little bit and kind of go back and forth a little bit about... Uh, think what we both like about the brand before getting into yours but yeah my, before, my handgelenks controller yeah you know <laughs> yeah we, we got to hear about it so so yeah actually i have i i don't have my watches on the wrist all oh, the time wow okay but, but uh right now i'm actually sitting here with a um sharpa ops mm-hmm. on the black tropic strap <clears throat> i do i mean i have them on my wrists a lot of times just to you know check the prototypes and check quality and check what i like i don't like and yeah i i do have the luxury of being the only one who has all access to all of them so mm. <laughs> i feel lucky with the ops right now yep oh that's great well that's great well you know as i said that that provides us with a great segue into getting into the heart of the matter here and you know before we get into sherpa watches itself i think what you know just to set the uh, the groundwork always like to ask you know watches um i think you and i are are both in in the position where watches are not our um you know our our <laughs> how we spend the the prime parts of our day um yep. And therefore, it's always interesting to ask someone, how did they get into watches? And then, you know, we can take that into why Enacar. Yeah, it's, I mean, regarding me and watches is quite strange. Recently, I remember actually, quite funnily, I, I, I never was a, was a watch guy. when, But when I was like, I think 18, I didn't really get on with my parents at home. And, and, and one way of getting out would have been to start in German, uh, eine Lehre, eine Ausbildung. It's an apprenticeship, yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I had in mind was actually watchmaking, quite funnily. But oh, wow. then it turned out I could stay at home and I could get on with my parents further. So I <laughs> <laughs> I did do it. And in the end, I studied mechanical engineering. But that was the first idea I ever had uh, about watches. And then, actually, it never really came to my mind. I had yeah, I had a Junghans uh, a Max Bill sometime and... But that was it. And <clears throat> I would say t- 2010 or 11, suddenly I was looking for my wife's birthday present. I was looking around and I'm not a major brand guy. So I'm more like into underdogs or different things. So I was looking around at eBay at that time, still a valid resource to buy watches. <laughs> <laughs> and I found this beautiful NOS a uh, new old stock little diving watch from the 60s, which was actually a, a lady dive from Enica. Okay, wow. With internal turning bezel and two crowns. Tiny, I think 29 millimeters. <laughs> and I loved it. And then I bought it for a present. And then suddenly I was, as I was, you know, looking in at eBay watches, I suddenly found other watches, which I quite liked. And then I... I found out that I liked old watches and yeah, so I started, you know, and then I had a Wackmann, uh, mm-hmm. the triple date Wackmann, which I really loved. And I, I had one or two or three any cars and I had some, and, and I really, really started, started falling in love with the old 
style of the Anycars because they had some very sp specific design, double crown and or dual crown, and they had often colorful models. Yeah, at least some color in it. Sometimes crazy color. I mean, like the guide, for example. So I, oh, I really got fond of that, and um, well, I have a small collection, not a big one. And then at some point in my life, I thought maybe I, I would like to do something new in my life. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, I'm, I'm still in the automotive and plastics industry. Um, so I was wondering, uh, why isn't the new owner of any car, the Warming Holding in Hong Kong, why aren't they bringing out classic models, which are really, you know, paying homage to the past to the back catalog that they really have. And I wrote a letter to them. Mm -hmm. Now, I basically, I'm, I'm, you know, I told them, okay, I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer with a love for old watches and I, I really would like to do something new and I'm capable of it. Uh, why not, you know, work for you and bring out old models? I have a friend in Hong Kong. He posted it with, in, what do you call that? If you post a letter and it's, You get a uh, receipt. Like a, uh, yeah, like a um, uh, a receipt, uh, kind of kind of proof of delivery type yeah, thing. Yeah, right? so it, so. It, it was delivered. They received it, and I never got the response. Mm. Which, of course, yes, in a way, understandable. I am a nobody at that time, yeah. And but it never, it's so it never escaped my mind. I thought, okay, hmm, quite a shame. And then a friend of mine, he's a business consultant. <laughs> <laughs> you told me, Martin, then you have to do it. I said, I'm mm -hmm. crazy, yeah? Why me and how? <laughs> and yeah, but it stayed in my mind. I researched a bit and I found out that Sherpa, the brand Sherpa, is actually available in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then I went on tour in Switzerland with some friends who also like watches. And we went to different locations. Uh, a friend of mine has quite a bit of connections. So we went to different uh, brands. We were really lucky to to go into the atelier of Vutiline, mm -hmm. which was amazing. And we also uh, went through Fortis. And at okay. that time, uh, Jupp just, uh, uh, you know, was the new owner, mm -hmm. also a great guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were led through Fortis. And, and while going through Fortis, I, I was counting the people, you know, the headcount. And there was like 10, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised. And then I got thinking. And then they told me also that there are some turnkey private label companies in Switzerland who are basically doing everything for you if you want to. So this is how my idea started. Yeah, Then I started registering the brand. I was making sure that the old designs are legally available, uh, that I don't tread on anybody's foot by doing what I wanted to do. So that's that's how I started, and I <clears throat> I started also with the idea in mind that I would have a private label company in Switzerland do all the work for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, b b before we keep moving on, I, I just to reflect on your kind of just happening upon Enacar, uh, it's it's kind of fascinating because I think we have some. Maybe some similar stories, although I clearly did not go into making my own watch, but I, well, maybe, maybe the story is different. I just happened to fall in with a crowd of people who 
really have a lot of knowledge about older watches and just by seeing their collection and you know following what they were buying and going after I started to get sucked into it and I blame um <laughs> jokingly but I blame uh Fred Mandelbaum who I guess you've heard of watch fred on on instagram oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. A, you know he's a noted brighting brightling collector but he also has a pretty fabulous collection of of vintage mostly sports watches let's say chronographs divers and things and you know when i first got into vintage i always tell people it was when i moved to europe and had a lot of different countries at my disposal to purchase from that were all duty free um it, it was really like a uh kid in a candy store and <laughs> cr- chronographs were the thing that you know I, I watched fred get into and Enicar came up and i had never heard of the brand yeah mm-hmm. but i really liked the design and i think that uh he had showed me some sherpa graph it was a later series one or series two so you know, red, red central chronograph hand or something. And I just wanted an example. I really had no clue what I wanted, but I knew I wanted one. And then talking to him further, he really said to me, he said, Mike, you know, there, there are a lot of old brands that we romanticize today and they made some pretty good watches, but these guys were a cut above. They really were making truly robust watches. Yes. They were using uh, a third party case maker, which is very common, but they were really sparing no expense in terms of using a, a highly developed case, uh, you know, signed crowns and crystals and things like that. And very different from your lookalike type watch back in the day. So I guess the point is, uh, yeah, you, you, literally by buying that present for, for your wife, you just happen to stumble on a brand that in my view was, was probably neck and neck quality wise with some of the massive brands that we, we see and hold so dear today. You know, I, I would even throw the Rolex word out there. They, these, you know, if you look at a value 72 from in a car, they were adjusting the movements and things like that. They were really, they were doing some pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, um, basically, I found out about all the background only later. I mean, mm-hmm. um, mentioning Fred, I, I just recently had a very interesting exchange with him about one Breitling model, mm-hmm. which was also EPSA-cased. Okay. And still now, you can still find out things that people didn't know. I mean, he he knew quite a lot about this too. But during <clears throat> during my research in Switzerland, when I started... I realized that there's so much more to to the history of any car models with the EPSA cases than I actually thought when I started. Yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah, and and I'm, I I think you, you're the person who's actually done what I think would be a fascinating story, albeit to a very niche crowd. But uh, you know, to go to a a Stube or a pub in Switzerland and sit around with some retired folks from various watchmakers. I think the amount of knowledge that we would pick up versus what we have today would be absolutely incredible. And I'm kind of surprised nobody's ever really done it uh, yeah. yes, because cool. we keep passing around the same stories to be very honest. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> one of the, uh, also 
important points after the visit to Switzerland with my friends <clears throat> and then and, and started growing on it was actually that at the same time when I was pondering of doing this, uh, Martijn van der Fen in, in, okay. in Eindhoven in Netherlands um, started telling everybody that he's writing a book about any car. Okay. Great book. And it's a fantastic book. And it's a fantastic guy. He's one of my friends now, I would say. Um, and he's also doing the copywriting for the things I do. Um, but at that time, I was really, I was still in the decision making and he just finished his book. And so I drove over. It's not so far away from here. It's a one hour drive. And I picked up my, my copy and I told him a bit about what I wanted to do. And basically he was really, really welcoming. And, and, and actually the, his, him doing the book was also for me like, yeah, uh, motivation to do what I do. Yeah. So I, I have to thank him also for, you know, for the first conversations and also all the details in the book. And at the time I already had done some research more on the technical side because I'm an engineer and interesting enough, all the things that I did in my profession before really, really helped me doing what I do now. So, wow. um, so then I started researching, well, why do the watches look like that? Why do they have two crowns? What are the crowns? Why are they special? What was special about the watch case? And et cetera, et cetera. So all my engineering background helped me. So first I, I started with brands, brand registrations. I started to research about the history of, of you know, Enica and Epsa. Both actually went bankrupt in the 80s. Hmm. So I think uh, Anika had two bankruptcies and later on were bought by by Warming Holding in, in Hong Kong. And and Epsa was also going bankrupt in 88 or 89 I think. Mm -hmm. So at the at the height of the quartz crisis which rocked the Swiss watch industry. At one time, Epsa was uh, the case maker, you know, which made all the cases for for the uh, signature Anika models. I think was one of the, was the biggest or one of the biggest watch case makers in the world. Hmm. Yeah, you see their signature on a lot of different watches, and they weren't only making compressor cases, correct? No, they were not only doing compressor cases, um, <clears throat> but during a certain time period i think they were doing a lot of compressor cases mm -hmm. i mean if you look back uh iwc had a compressor um case watch uh, longine had one uh, vulcan Bolva, um, yeah uh, loads of them yeah lots of them and everybody Tissot, everybody had at one time or later they had a compressor case um watch Usually double crown, but sometimes they were only single crowns, and you know most people don't know that even they are compressor watches because it's not the two crowns which are compressor, but <laughs> the the case back. Yeah, um, but also um, they they did a, a square compressor case which was called Compressor Two, and as far as I know, the um, Hoyer Monaco had that case from Epsa. Yes, I do believe you are correct because I do remember, um, <clears throat> well, I just picked up a, a vintage uh, Monaco, kind of a, <laughs> kind of a, a, yeah, a surprise buy, let's say. And 
um, just in reading more of the history, yeah, it was EPSA who approached him and that was sort of the secret exclusivity deal in the whole caliber 11 uh, race that gave Hoyer something very different, I guess. Yeah. So, so when I dove into any car and found out that EPSA was the case maker, I started researching. And interesting enough, there is actually one book written about uh, EPSA okay. in French. So I had to dig out my old French, my school French. <laughs> um, and in the book, there were some references that would hint that there are somewhere hidden in Switzerland, there are archives which have maybe more documents because there was nobody left. Nobody could tell me anything about the company. Nobody from the original family was somewhere to be found. So I researched all the patents, um, which are many. EPSA has more than 200 patents, I think, hmm. uh, ranging from the 1940s up to the 70s, late 70s, I think. Very creative people. Uh, but patents only tell you half of the story. But by the way, I have to ask, um, was this all doable online or did you have to travel frequently to go get it, uh, get the information? So with the patent research, it's quite simple. You just do it online. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, and the book also, no problem. But then I, I actually traveled several times to Switzerland and mm -hmm. spent a uh, reasonable time in, in, in the archives. So I found, I was very lucky, I found the personal archive of the technical development head of EPSA. Mm -hmm. It's personal stuff. And, and the, the, the author of the book about EPSA um, persuaded him to do that. So before he died, he actually gave all that to, to a, an archive in Switzerland. Hmm, so I could research. And, okay, I found several things out. I mean, one thing, the EPSA case that was made for any car was very special. It's not a it, – I mean, it looks – it's always said it's super compressor – But super compressor cases were quite special. They had a case back that was actually screw-in. Mm -hmm. But the screw-in case was decoupled by a spring. So it's a very complicated, uh, quite a complicated mechanism. You would screw it in, but the tightness of the case was not dependent on how far you screw in. <laughs> but basically, um, the tightness was regulated by a spring. Okay. So that was the super compressor. Uh, I would say the Longines, the Vulcan, the IWC cases, they were super compressor with this kind of, you know, with the spring inside. And, um, but any car always had a very special, uh, um, a bayonet case. Yeah. It was not screw in. It was, um, yeah, a bayonet, like a camera lens you would, you know, um, insert into the camera. Yeah. And that was quite special. It was only done for any car. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, it was called EPSA Stop. And then Anika took it up on their own, and they called it Sea Pearl. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and interesting enough, I mean, you are in the plastics business, and me too. So <clears throat> the reason for compressor system at that time was that the gaskets were thermoplastic material. Mm-hmm. And if you put thermoplastic material under longer time under pressure, thermoplastic material will move. So the, the, the pressure, which is guaranteeing the tightness, 
would be reduced and go like an asymptote, they, it will go to close to zero on the long run. Mm. So if you, if you com compress the gasket at that time back in the 50s uh, to the pressure you would need to withstand 200 meters, after some weeks, months maybe, I don't know, uh, the gasket pressure will be not high enough to, to do that actually. So they were quite ingenious to do that and, and to, to, to devise a system that would reduce the pressure on everyday use so that this will not happen. But to enable the, the pressure of the gasket to increase when you are diving deeper and the pressure of the water will press the case back into the gasket when you need it, you know, underwater. Mm -hmm. And when you go up, Uh, and, and you go around in usual day life, it, the pressure will be reduced to what you need for everyday use. So back then, the invention was basically for the old type of gaskets available at that time. Pretty ingenious, I have to say. I was really, I mean, as an engineer, I was so fascinated that I thought, oh, that's, that's an amazing, you know. It's like you're using the enemy's force like in Aikido, you know, the water pressure. You want to keep the water pressure out, but you use the force to turn it against himself, yeah? It's, I, I really love that. Um, I mean, with the new gasket system that you have, the, the new rubbers that were evolving in the 80s or 70s, 80s, you could argue that it's not really necessary anymore to do that. On the other hand, it's still, you know, uh, the more pressure you put even on the modern gasket for a longer time, you have to, you know, exchange them. So sure. if you have the, the bayonets uh, compressor or the compressor system, it will still help the gaskets. And at the same time, it's also a very elegant solution. I, I like it. And so we, we uh, took the bayonet idea, bayonet compressor idea, and reinvented it. I mean, we, we changed the system so that you can insert the case back only one direction. So we have a very beautiful case back. It will be oriented always in the same way. And it's also adapted to the new modern gasket materials. So hmm. it is compressing, uh, but, you know, defined in the modern way that you have to do with the modern gaskets. So you basically re-engineered the sea pearl system using modern material. And, and, and as you mentioned, to ensure that uh, the case back is always, call it with the logo, oriented uh, how you'd like, correct? Yeah, it's <clears throat> so it's we changed it a bit. I mean, uh, the old system looked more like a, a camera bayonet. Our system now looks more like the old, I think, BNC network connector bayonet. Yeah, you have mm, like yeah. little little rods sticking out, which are then going in some kind of labyrinth in the case. Yep. Uh, which you know, it's more precise. I think so. It's a, it's a modern interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. and, um, so it's quite interesting also to see that at that time uh, um, the patents I mean we did a lot of patents research um, during during lockdown we had a patent with my designer Cyrano Devonte uh, from Beaumont they, they, they have an engineering office in Switzerland we were going through I think in one day with the Bern patent office the Swiss patent office online I think through 2000 patents wow <laughs> Just to check that we are not infringing, uh, infringing, and and interesting was in the Swiss industry the compressor like bayonet or compressor systems were quite the thing in the fifties, sixties. 
Then there came a, a, a wave uh, of patents, which was, I think, 70s, 80s, which were from Japan. And and then sometimes in the 2010s or 2000s, uh, there were some things happening in China. Mm. Quite interesting. So, so I don't want to get into uh, the, the supply chain piece and that right now. We'll, we'll get into that. But I do want to pause and ask a question. Uh, why? So why, Martin? I mean, you know, you could have, and again, not to get into the supply chain piece, yeah. but if I look at your watch, mm-hmm. you know, from three meters or whatever it is, you could have very easily, you know, gone to a catalog or worked with, um, you know, any number of, you know, nothing wrong with it, but, uh, Chinese based, uh, suppliers or Hong Kong based suppliers yep. and, and made something that superficially looks, you know, pretty similar to what you have. You know, you talk mm. about the research on the compressor system that you did and, you know, going through 2000 patents with the patent office in Switzerland, you know, what drove you to do this versus let's be honest, taking the, let's call it the easy way out. Hmm. I'm, I'm in a way, I don't know, my character is simply such that I, I usually I'm, I'm striving, I'm striving for the truth. I, I really, when I look into something, I really want to know how it works. So, and once I found out how the old watches worked for me, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's a sacrilege or whatever. It's to do it differently, but I wanted to say, okay, if this is a compressor, look, I mean, if it's a watch that looks like a compressor or a dual crown compressor, I want it to be one. Um, and if, if I want to have the crosshatch crowns, they shouldn't look like compressor crowns, but they should be compressor crowns. So that it's my attitude calling me a bit stubborn, but I'm, I'm a bit like what you see is what you get. So if you see, a compressor watch it should be one and <clears throat> and the fascination with with the creativity of of the uh, inventive people of epsa and also enica at that time i i thought in a way i mean i can't i couldn't do it differently <laughs> <laughs> i just couldn't do i, I just couldn't say I, I wouldn't be able to stand there and say look i brought back these two watches but i just you know just they just they simply look like them yeah you almost felt like you had to do them proud and and yeah. and <clears throat> so continue I, that work yeah yeah no i was so amazed to see what's behind actually that i thought i couldn't i mean it's the the watch is basically an uh, homage first to anika old anika models and also to epsa to mm-hmm. both companies because during my research i just you know my fascination for the things they did really grew i mean for example the crown we didn't i mean i don't want to bore you but the crown is also very special nobody knows that i mean nobody knew that before i started this so the crowns are actually also a compressor system crown yeah let's let, let's hear it because i think uh, I, i'd also be you know if you can weave it in i'd be curious you know on your views on on having that second crown and is it uh is it an unreliable way to work a bezel versus having an external or, but, but I'm curious on, on a, how the crown, how it works and, and what your view is in terms of, uh, 
its waterproofness or water resistance. Yeah. So so basically, what I, I found out in research was that the, these crowns were special. So there was a patent uh, which I researched, and it didn't. It, it made sense to me, but it didn't in a way because patents are always written to protect, but they shouldn't inform the competition how it's exactly done. Sure. Yeah? So. Um, But I was very, very lucky in the archive in Switzerland. I found the <laughs> the apprenticeship. I mean, the daughter of the technical head of EPSA was doing an apprenticeship in the company. Probably she needed that for studies. I don't know. And she was made to describe what she did and uh, what kind of things she was seeing and looking at in the company. So I was so happy that I found her report on this. Probably she was really going mad that back t back then that she had to write this, but <laughs> I was, I mean, I could profit. So she described the function of the crown, how it worked, etc., etc. So I, I found out. And quite interesting, in the crown, there's actually a some plastic part, a very tiny one. And this one <clears throat> is like some kind of tubular structure, which is, um, going over the tube, which is coming out of the watch. And it's this is actually the gasket. And the interesting bit is, if the water pressure is rising, the water will press this gasket structure onto the tube. Okay. So um, my view on this crown as an engineer would be 200 meters are definitely not the limit. So currently, we have tested the watches, uh, and we will also uh, certify them up to 200 meters. So there's the, the ISO or DIN norm for, for diving watches. We will not do the complete norm, but we, we will do the depth certification. So we will specify them for 20 bar, mm -hmm. which is equivalent to 200 meters, more or less. Mm -hmm. But I think for the crown, and they are not screwed down, for the crown... My gut feeling is it can go as far as the tube which is coming out of the watch will withstand. So <laughs> we will do a test up to 500 meters. Um, currently, I'm confident that we will pass this, but I can't. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> we go step by step. But what what I think is it's no problem to have the 200 meters. So every testing we did so far did suggest it's not a problem. And what I loved about this, I'm a guy. I don't like screw down crowns. I have okay. I've got a watch, and uh, I want to you know use the watch, and I want you know to manipulate, uh, and I don't have I don't want to unscrew a crown before I can do anything. That's me, probably me being strange. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. Watches are strange, right? So. Yeah. But I, I, I always wondered when I had the old Anycast, how did they do that? I mean, at that time, they were already 200 meters, yeah? Mm -hmm. So how did they do it? And so in the end, I found out why the crowns were not screwed down and how they actually did it. And I also had to recreate that. So I'm curious, the, the thermoplastic or the, the material used on the crown, is it the same as on the case back? No, the case back, the, the, the case back actually is now using standard rubber material. Okay, got it. Uh, the crown has still uh, also, I mean, we saw back then, you have to to think about that. They wrote the patent, I think, in 53, 54. Okay. At that time, they used a material which was just 
invented some years before. <laughs> they used a very special grade out of the polyamide family, mm -hmm. which I think was coming to the market in the 50s. Wow. So EPSA was really, really pushing the envelope back then. I mean, I was really surprised to see that. Um, okay, now I, I used a different material, but um, to, to, to have a more modern material. Um, but yeah, I was quite surprised to see them so far ahead of anything back then. So, so you've <clears throat> you researched the technologies that went into the original, and then you developed modern analogs, essentially. So, so that's a process, but then, you know, you have to, you have to actually make something and you actually have to get the parts and you have to <laughs> have this all come together, which, you know, for, forget the fact, or maybe don't forget the fact that doing that, uh, for any type of product over the last two years has been entertaining to say the least, but here again in watches, I think that there's been a lot in this, in this, uh, call it industry made of transparency of, you know, Swiss made of German made of Japanese made. And I think that you have some people who just have a belief that everything magically comes from Switzerland when you see that, or everything comes from, you know, uh, or, or that some of the big brands we know from Switzerland are doing everything in these small villages in Switzerland. And we've, those of us who, who do any amount of reading know that that's not the case. Um, yeah. there's a lot of offshoring and uh, a lot of the supply chain is, is overseas. Tell us about what it's been like to take that idea and put it into you know, production and, and dealing with sourcing and, and what, what you really wanted to accomplish with your sources and, and what you try have really tried to do. Yeah. It's it, for me as a newbie, um, maybe it was good that I'm from outside. So the, I chose a crown technology that, you know, nobody wants to do now or wanted to do, uh, because it's different. <clears throat> it's an extra effort. Um, and also I looked at everything else. So, um, so I, for, for me, it was a surprise to see that, you know, if you look at watches at a certain price point, maybe up to 2000, up to 3000, uh, uh, euros on the market, uh, many things do not come. Most things that you see do not come from Switzerland. <clears throat> so, I mean, the Swiss, at least they have some kind of frame structure to define what is Swiss made. Yeah. 60% of the, hmm. Uh, what do you call it? Of the content or uh, country of origin or something? Yeah, yeah, sixty percent of the um, of the I don't know what do you call it investment or whatever it, it should come from Switzerland. But then you have the prototypes being made in Switzerland. You have the project head uh, in Switzerland. You have uh, the movement coming out of Switzerland, and you have the assembly line in Switzerland. So then you know, depending on the calculation, a lot of things can come from India. China and Thailand, yeah, mm -hmm. and okay, which is fair enough. Um, but I also had to learn that if I go the route I wanted to go, which is made in Europe only, that at the end you have a certain a different price point. Mm -hmm. um, but 
to be honest, I, I, I was looking in different direction and also looking at the past of the watches. And back then they were really, really Swiss made. And okay, I'm from Germany. So I looked into the Swiss option, but somehow I thought, okay, I'm German. I found a very good case maker here in, in Germany in, in Pforzheim. Um, and I thought, okay, I mean, the main part is coming now from, from, from Germany and <clears throat> I want to have everything made in Europe. So basically I built, built everything around that. And, um, I also think if we keep offshoring everything, then, you know, what, what will remain in the end? Yeah. What, what, what will we keep in Europe? So, uh, the glassmaker for us, um, Sebal, very good one. They make the raw sapphire in Switzerland and then everything else also in Switzerland. And he told me, ah, Mr. Klocker, I mean, what do we want to leave for our kids? Do we want to give them a list of uh, suppliers in Asia or do we want to leave something else for them? And I think this is also an aspect for, for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's one aspect. The other, other aspect is also I cannot control the conditions under which things are built in Asia. Uh, and, and I, I, I do trust the suppliers in Europe in that regard a lot more. Also regarding environmental, uh, environmental issues, uh, work conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, everybody, also the, the, the customers who are buying the watches, when they go home from work, they don't, they, they don't want to have the paycheck from a Chinese worker. So mm-hmm. in a way, yeah. Um, the complete package really made sense to me. So I started sourcing everybody here in Europe. And was that challenging being a newcomer and, you know, not, you know, you weren't, uh, you weren't rolling in there saying I'm going to have a display case at every major booker or something like that. So what was the, what was that like? I don't know. Uh, in a way, I don't. I don't. I mean, for, I can only say my perspective. I mean, I was lucky. I had a good designer in Switzerland, and I also had a, a good constructor. I mean, a good engineer, watch engineer, Suronos uh, Devonte, um, and both of them helped me to get into the supply uh, watch supply industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, at the beginning, I think, I mean, they were nice to me. We had interesting talks, but I think they couldn't really judge. I mean, a lot of small brands appear, yeah, but they also disappear. So I think they watched me in a way curiously, yeah, if I can really pull this off. But I think now they take me seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and and re, I mean, they they also saw photos and the watches and everything. So everything we talked about uh, one and a half or two years ago, I mean, we did, you know. So so <clears throat> I think I think at the beginning it must have been funny to them that somebody from outside the industry is suddenly appearing and talking to them about hands and and glasses and this and that. Um, yeah, but they didn't tell me like that at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and what were some of the toughest parts to source in Europe? Uh which were which were the most challenging for you? Mm. Mm, I think the glasses mm-hmm. are very they're very complicated because mm-hmm. they're really complex geometries and it, they take a long time uh, grinding and polishing. 
the glasses are very difficult and difficult to source and to find somebody in Europe who's really doing it all in Europe. That was quite difficult. Um, the case maker <clears throat> uh, was also not so easy, but I found him very early and it's a very good one. So I'm, I'm very lucky with that. Mm-hmm. And also what else? Yeah, basically, I mean, also the hands are very complex. I mean, I, uh, at the beginning, as a naive beginner, I didn't think of that, but I have faceted hands uh, for hour and minute and, and they are diamond polished on the facets. Um, on the OPS, they are also satinized to make them not so flashy because the OPS is a bit military and shouldn't flash in the sun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, at the beginning, I didn't realize that they are actually quite complex hands. So in a way, all the components that I have, also the dials, they are, they are, the dials are domed. And in the case of the, the, the ultra dive, they also have applied indices, which are set into the dial in the curved part. So, yeah, I was complex. naive at the beginning. So I, I started with quite quite a bit of complexity. Yeah. Um, but in the end, every, every detail put together, they make the watch the way they are, yeah? Sure, sure. I so, mean, the details count. Um, there's yeah. no doubt about it. I, I mean, I remember, oh, it was probably now three, four years ago, talking to Fred, he was kind of at the heart of when, when Breitling re-released the Navitimer from uh, the 1950s, the original one. Mm-hmm. And he was absolutely obsessed with detail, you know, whether it was the width of font on, on a slide rule that honestly, most people would never notice. Right. But mm-hmm. now you understand, right. I mean, you, you, you would, you would completely feel at home in that discussion right? because uh, it is those details, right? Yeah. And especially, <clears throat> um, I mean, I, I turned around every micrometer of that watch 10 times. I mean, you wouldn't believe that. I mean, you wouldn't believe what we did. I mean, it's all only, uh, I mean, it's only a re-release or reissue. Yeah. But even that, I mean, you have to look at every font. You have to look at every angle of on any f- chamfer, on any radius, and, and you know everything. Um, so yes, I can completely understand that. And and um, then when you did all the design, and you go to the suppliers, most supplier tell you, yeah, but I can't do this, I can't <laughs> do that. We have to change this. You have to change that. This can't be done. This is not feasible. Blah blah blah. So. <clears throat> And for these discussions, I was very good to have everybody in Europe. Yeah. Because over the continent, time change, you cannot, I I mean, I I wouldn't be able to do that in detail. Yeah. And in the end, if you get something which is not what you wanted, the watch is different. So if, if I had gone with every change suggestion from the suppliers, this watch would be completely different. Mm. So I had to, you know, I had to also stick to what I wanted. And yeah. <clears throat> I, I think there are a lot of people and, and granted, uh, when I say a lot of people, you know, you mentioned brands come and go, we see the rise of the micro brand, uh, mm-hmm. that has been going on for, well, I feel like five, 10 years now. And, um, 
you know, when you see these watches uh, again at a distance for 500, a thousand or something, you see things and you say, wow, that's, that's not bad. And okay. Maybe compared to a big brand that's selling something for 1500. And of course they've got a lot more mouths to feed and things like that. But, um, do you, were you, they're, they're probably buying a lot of things from a catalog, I guess. Um, were there ever any points where you said, uh, you know, for this part, it's not, maybe it's not worth it or, you know, it's just so much effort and going back and forth and back and forth. Were there ever any points where you questioned or you just said, ah, am I crazy or <laughs> what, what's, what, what am I doing here? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, you have to imagine that, that two and a half years ago, I didn't, didn't have anything, you know? So of course, during the, the the steps that I did, I mean, I questioned myself constantly. Yeah, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a very self-critical person, so um, you know that's you, sometimes you just wonder what am I doing here? You know, doing this and researching that. Doing, I mean, actually, I'm a, I'm a crown manufacturer. Yeah, so I'm I'm manufacturing the crowns. Mm, okay, so wow. I do get the components from sub suppliers, but I. I manufacture the crowns, yeah. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, um, <clears throat> sometimes you have to wonder what you're doing. I, mean, I was always confident this would work. Yeah, you know, Cyrano uh, Devonte, the the, the the constructor, the, the the watch watch engineer or yeah, watchmaker in Switzerland who did the design. He was always. I mean, he was work. He's works. He's working for Uhrwerk, you know. Mm-hmm. And he told me ah, we are doing a lot of crazy stuff at Uhrwerk, and it works. So. You can do the crown yourself. <laughs> so, but sometimes you always, you wonder and think, "Wow, is this really going to work?" And um, so, when the first uh, waterproof uh, tests were done at my case maker, uh, and everything worked, I was really, I was relieved and said, "Okay, this this is possible." Um, but I mean, coming back to the fact that people were looking at me a bit curiously at the beginning. One of the guys in the case maker told me after one year of development time, he told me that this would work. I would have never thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I have to say, and, and you know, just in talking to you, I mean, you clearly seem like someone where if you get an idea in your head, you're going to follow it through. Um, you know, <clears throat> you've, you've mentioned it about yourself here. You're uh, self-critical and and driven and. You know, I've been a party to some watch development just either in working on collaborations and and granted, these are larger brands, but it blows me away how long it takes to get prototypes or get something done. And in light of that, I would say, yeah, the the amount of time that this has taken is pretty impressive because I think you've, you've managed to, you've managed to come up with impressive timing and probably because you've really been on top of everything. Yeah, so that's something I found out because I, I wanted to do something different. So I didn't want to have the standard crowns. I didn't want to have the standard screw in case back. I wanted to really know in depth what I was doing. And I think the only way I, I, I could achieve this is actually to be in the driver's seat and to do everything myself. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean, sourcing, talking to suppliers, bringing everything together. So and, and this could only be done like that. And 
<clears throat> yeah. So, so, so one thing, I mean, when we spoke, I think it was, geez, almost over, probably over a year ago or roughly a year ago, or uh, I don't remember, but, um, you know, at, at one point you were targeting a certain, um, uh, there was a price level you had in mind. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that ship sort of came and went, um, yeah. what, what was that like? And, and, um, you know, what were the, what were the things that occurred that really led to sort of a, an eye opening, uh, experience on that front? I mean, yeah, <clears throat> during the development, uh, I had different stages and, different ideas from at the beginning from private label companies telling me price level here price level there and well but basically uh, sometime in the development when i started sourcing with the concrete cad data and everything then then there comes the the, the moment of truth you know where you count everything together and then you have to see where where you are heading mm -hmm. and of course that for a <laughs> short moment of time i thought oh I'm heading somewhere else, um, but then, then I looked at at other offerings and and how they are sourcing and what kind of volume they're doing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you also always have to put it into perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think for for the very uh, special designed and and constructed watch that I have uh, with all the components coming from Germany and Switzerland, I think the the offers actually when you look at that pretty impressive yeah i i <clears throat> and you know to the listener out there i generally don't go beyond whatever they call it in movies the third wall but it was a real reason that we wanted to have a discussion with martin <clears throat> and we're not done yet by the way but i i thought with this watch uh doing an article and even trying to get my thoughts across on why this watch is quite different from pr pretty much everything else I've seen. Uh, especially if you, if, if you're going to lop a bunch of retro watches together, I thought it was really important or it is important to understand what's behind it. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy we're here doing that. So anyhow, just an aside there. Yep. Um, so then, Tell me a little bit about, you know, the, there are two watches that make up this first release and okay, they're, they're similar in terms of case, uh, shape, uh, with, with, with obviously some color difference there. Um, the ultra dive and the ops, uh, why did you choose these two to start with? And I mean, it's probably an obvious answer, probably your favorites, but, um, no. what, what made you choose them? Actually, I, um, I had a very good conversation with Martijn van der Ven, you know, the author of the book, you know, uh, Time for a Change about Enica. <clears throat> and we were, I was targeting them at the beginning, but I was not sure. But in the, in the end, I think these are the most unique dual crown compressor watches out there, namely because of their big size. Okay, your Superjet is also 40 millimeters. But the OPS and the Ultra Dive had crown protection between the dual crowns, which made them stick out out of the crowd of dual crown watches. So that's why I chose them. And 
then of course it was quite handy that they both have the same case only the difference is the finish so uh, back then the OPS had some kind of nobody really knows what it had but it was a black coating um, it was not PVD back then it was they they had to cook up something special mm -hmm. um, several layers of different things on top um, but I decided to do it in DLC so and the the ultra dive is polished and yeah so it was yeah so i wanted to start with the ops only at the beginning but then i thought okay it's their sisters so why not do both of them yeah i i agree with you that these are truly unique looking pieces and um you know on a personal note i've i've sort of hemmed and hawed about buying an original and have, uh, for whatever reason, you know, lost a bid or whatever it is, because I, I agree with you always very unique. And yeah, regarding the ops piece, I think that whatever companies were using at that time, uh, feels to me like something you can now scratch off with your nail. So <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, at first when I saw the ultra dives, um, I thought that, the, they were basically just ops where the, uh, the coating had come off and <laughs> hadn't really realized that there were two models. So, um, yeah, truly unique. And, you know, maybe spend a minute and just talk to us a little bit about the movement and what you've done there, because I think that's a little bit special too. Yeah. <clears throat> so in a way, mm, when I started, you know, using the brand name Sherpa, it came more and more apparent to me that, you know, I have a very special connection to that. You know, it, mm -hmm. it started off with being, oh, under Sherpa brand, that, that were the, the watches everybody's looking for from any car, um, to, wow, Sherpa is actually a brilliant name, brand name for me personally. And, and because I'm, I'm a, The Sherpas are actually Tibetan, uh, a Tibetan tribe which uh, went out of Tibet to um, to Nepal. So they are basically Tibetans, uh, and and most Tibetans are Buddhists. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the Sherpas also in Nepal, even though sometimes they lose a bit connection to their Tibetan in heritage, um, they are Tibetans and Tibetan Buddhists, and me too. You know, I I belong to a Tibetan <laughs> sect, as you call it. Mm -hmm. There's four schools in Tibetan Buddhism, so I'm I'm connected to that on a on a very deep heart level. So I thought, what what could I do? Um, so one thing what I do is I, I give money back to the region. I have two projects which you also can see on the website, which are supporting uh, uh, the rebuild of a school in, in a rural area. Yeah, the rural areas everywhere usually do not have so much money, especially in Nepal. So there's a school. On a, on a village uh, which which being rebuilt after the destruction by the earthquake in I think 2015, and then I support a brilliant project in the um, uh, Sagamata ne um, National Park around Mount Everest, and they collect garbage, shred it, pack it into small parcels, and all the trekking tourists who are coming there, they take some of it back to the next town where it can be transported off. So okay. that's one thing that I wanted to do. And then I thought, okay, what would, I mean, I always thought about what would Anika do now or what would EPSA do now with the watch, you know, uh, moving from uh, different technologies into today. Um, but I also thought, what 
would a Sherpa think or what would, you know, what could be an idea that I could put into the watch that connects to there? So, well, the, the Sherpas, they are known to be very calm on the mountains, whatever expedition, you know, they never argue. I've never heard about any kind of protest or fight on the mountains. And they, you know, they carry everybody up and down. And I would guess mostly not very easy persons if, you know, there is some really stress situation on the mountain. So, but, and they, they do have this attitude also because of their religion. Yeah. And they say mantras, you know, like Om Mani Pemyung. And the mantra is said to calm down bad emotions and, you know, you know, stress good emotions. And older people in Tibet, they do that also with the mantra wheels, you know, prayer wheels. So I had yeah. the crazy idea to integrate that into movement. <laughs> <laughs> but the same like with the watches, I didn't want to have a marketing gag and say, oh, yeah, this is, you know, and, and in fact, it doesn't work. So at least on a spiritual level, I had to clarify that. So I went to a high Tibetan teacher back then before pandemic in 2019. I was lucky that still things could happen. So I met him in Germany and I, I, I proposed what I had as an idea. And he, he said, okay, from a Buddhist perfect, um, perspective, you can actually integrate that into a movement if you do it like that. So we clarified everything. And I started, you know, naive how I am. And said, okay, I want to, uh, you know, laser engrave that into a movement wheel. <laughs> Only to find out that it actually goes to the physical feasibility of laser engraving because the wheels are so stupidly small <laughs> and they don't offer any kind of area to write on. So the first results were like blurred, you know, mm. in. And so I went back to that teacher and said, okay, is it enough if the intent to write is there? Or should you actually be able, if you, if you have it on the microscope, and read it? And he said, no, it would be better if you can read it. So <laughs> I invested quite a bit of time um, with a specialist in, in Soling. And Soling is the, 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 the capital of German knife making. Mm -hmm. And he's engraving knives, actually, yeah, for many knife uh, manufacturers. And he has a very modern laser, a femto laser. And I had to modify quite, I mean, they had to modify. I had to research how to do special in laser engraved Tibetan font on the computer. So to make it short, now we have two wheels. It's the escapement wheel and the seconds wheel, which is engraved, both of them. And they make actually 30 million mantras per year. So if you were a meditation master, you would have to sit quite a while in a cave <laughs> wow. to get these kind of numbers of mantras and it is actually i mean if you believe in it or you don't but it is is a good vibration out there and it's uh you know the intent is positive so usually buddhists also wish everybody all the best um and that's also engraved on the rotor so basically we we have the movement which we call mantramatic it is a salita sw200 slash one Uh, in gilt finish, high decoration, we get it. We take it apart, more or less half. You know, the half of the side we have to take off. Take out the wheels, laser engrave them, put them in again. Uh, we have a, an, uh, our own custom rotor that we make, put it on. So in a way, yeah, it is a, a standard Salita, but we put a lot of work in it. Yeah, I mean, the... I guess I didn't know the full story about the laser engraving, but it's, it's pretty incredible. And 
I think what I like actually is that it's not a display back, of course, and yeah, that's <laughs> yet, yet yet that's in there, and yeah, I think these are the things that you know if you look through the history of watches, I mean, open up watches and you find gold plated this or that, and you can't see it day to day, but you know that it's in there, and you know that somebody paid attention to it, much like the original Enicar with those types of thoughtful ideas and. I think it's neat. I think it's really a cool, yeah, a bit of, bit of a throwback to, I think, what, what watchmaking used to be, which is a lot of personality and passion into something. And mm. I'm not saying it doesn't exist today with other brands, but I think you've really, <laughs> there's no doubt this is a passion project. Um, yeah, it's, it's also like um, <clears throat> the same People on the booth, they say, yeah, why don't you have a glass bag? Or why do you put in an expensive uh, decorated movement if you can't see it? And for me, it's a question. Of, uh, for me, it's a bit like, as you said, you know, it's a bit of a question of honor. I mean, back then, uh, if you look at old 60s watches uh, from Enica or even more so from IWC or other people, they had a steel bag and, and inside a crazily uh, decorated movement. Um, and you wouldn't think about doing it only to be seen. So this was what I, you know, also took as as a clue and said, okay, I want to have a beautiful back, which is actually very beautiful. It's also a very <clears throat> highly decorated uh, case back. Uh, it is a tool watch, but with a nice case back. And but the movement also has to be beautiful. I chose gilt finish, which is right now not in fashion anymore. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's it's. Uh, um, usually not used anymore, but I like the warmth of the gilt, of the gold finish, gold plating. And it's also an homage to the time back then when movements were largely gold plated. I like it too, by the way. Mm. So, um, price. Mm -hmm. So when we look at, uh, the two watches, 5,800 and 5,900, yeah, euros. Well, it includes German VAT of 19%. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's been a lot of discussion about this and uh, they're not inexpensive. Uh, if you look at just throwing out uh, watches like a Omega 300M or something, probably a little bit less. So you have other, call it modern dive watches in this realm. Um, who is who? Who would you say this watch is for, and and who do you? I guess in your discussions, what kind of people are, are coming up with serious interest? I mean, obviously you have the mm -hmm. Anacar collector out there, the vintage collector. Um, what are you seeing so far? So it's quite interesting. The, 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 of course, I <clears throat> we have several groups which are very interested. So so it's the old the vintage collectors, uh, Anacar collectors, um, then. People who really value high quality, uh, not yeah, not handmade. But it, it, in a way, they are handmade. Of course, we have suppliers which use machines, etc. But but a lot of things involved. I mean, obviously, with 150 pieces each, it's not a high serial <laughs> assembly line. Yeah, we have one watchmaker in Fortsheim who, who will assemble them. <clears throat> so people who value that, who also value high quality. A uh, high degree of finishing and putting a lot of passion into watches. Uh, I see them coming up. A lot of watchmakers coming up. For example, in Frankfurt, when we met, there were two or three uh, watchmakers 
who said, I mean, this is a beautiful watch, the beautiful, most beautiful watch on the on the show today. Yeah. Mm. So there, there is a special crowd who really values that. That's one. And of course, I do have other people which are, who are looking at the 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 inside. You know, some people who also tick crazily like I am with the mantra idea. They they love that. So it's it's a mixed crowd, but um, of course you have to value high quality and a lot of detailed work put into a watch to um, also see the price as um, something you can you want to pay. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I, I think I, I was really thinking, I've been thinking about, you know, how to categorize this watch. And I think one of the, honestly, in my mind, the, the bigger challenges is, well, there's several challenges, right? I mean, today with more virtual, um, that's challenging. And, you know, for a small brand like yourself, who is not in stores, uh, yeah. I do think with a lot of things seeing is believing. So, so that's a challenge. Um, the other thing is that it is a, uh, a retro piece and certainly there are loads of retro brands out there at all kinds of prices. But if, if you look at it as a watch and as something that is, is crafted the way it is, I think it easily competes with modern watches and other things in that price bracket. And, when you when you focus on the story of of how you've sourced it and and made sure to specify where these things come from, um, I think it starts to put it in more perspective. Now, whether or not that uh, has people pulling the trigger or not, uh, I, I think if you're if you're one who really really focuses on the details, it's it's really worth thinking about. Um, the the other product I had in mind, and I've told a couple of people this, um, I said the watch for whatever reason sort of reminds me of those uh, Singer Porsches um, <laughs> that are, <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. it's, ju it's just such a specialized product. And it's sort of like, you know, you look at a Singer and... I wouldn't claim to know what, what these individual vehicles sell for. It's hundreds and hundreds of thousands um, for what is essentially a a really worked 911, but not like a cheesy modified 911. And mm. I look at this as this watch is going to be for somebody who's into the details. Yeah, who's mm. into the details um, and cares just as much really about how the watch came together as what it looks like yeah, yeah. that's my view i mean what i can say really is it's 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 a complete uh, passion project and uh, we looked at all the details every detail we looked at we made the best way possible so <clears throat> and i also had the reaction that if people online were bitching about you know pricing this pricing that i would have done it like that and i would pay for a 20 percent, but not 100 percent but we had the experience in Frankfurt and also in Düsseldorf on the fair. If people come to the booth, have the watches in their hand and hear what I have to say, they really understand it. So far, I haven't seen anybody who had the watch in his hand and really know, you know, understand how it's made, how it's put together, what kind of quality we actually deliver. They never said, oh, it's not worth it. Maybe they say it's not my price point, but they really value what we do. So that's uh, what I see. 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, and I, and I get that. I do. Um, having seen the prototypes there, it was very impressive. Um, so, so for you, as we sort of close out here, mm-hmm. you know, a couple things. Um, so in, you know, this project is, uh, I guess watches are going to come soon and how do you define success? I mean, okay. For, for, there's probably an element of, of watches sold, but you know, what is, what is success and uh, have you already reached success uh, to, to a large degree just by making this happen? Um, how do you, how do you define that Martin? Yeah, I define <clears throat> success as I mean, one, I sometimes forget about this because I'm so critical of myself, but I mean, having, I mean, having gotten where I am now is a big, big, big success in the time with, being more or less a one-man army who's organizing everybody around him. And I'm very proud of the product. That's one piece. But of course, success would be if I sold enough watches to go on. Mm. Because you know, I know the back catalog that is still there. There's so many beautiful watches to go. (laughs) (laughs) It just blows my mind. And, you know, you talking about the super jet. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there is another there's a super dive. Yeah, I don't, you know. So I would really love to go on. That would be this would be a success for me to say, yeah, it's not a one day fly we call it in Germany. I don't know what it's in in English. One hit wonder. Yeah. yeah. I want to go on. I want to build a, a solid small watch company doing a very special product uh, which appeals to a, a certain crowd and delivers high-quality watches uh, with a bigger catalog. This is what I want to do. Well, I, I I certainly hope that happens. And I think that, like I said, seeing the watches in person, hearing the story about the levels that you went to to make this such a an exceptional product, um, yeah, that, that, that level of transparency and, and just fastidiousness uh, is not something that, that we see every day and that's not to put down other watches. I mean, there's, like you said, different price points people have, but I think that for those who, who really enjoy this dual crown super compressor style, um, that this is really worth, (laughs) worth taking a look at. And I think we often forget that this is a watch that despite looking like something, uh, that was, was out decades ago, is a watch that can function day to day now and go on a diving trip, right? Yep. It's true. Yeah. So, well, look, um, Martin, any other things you'd like to mention before we go? No, I think we tortured the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think, you know, we've not, um, had a guest like you on before. And I I think that much like your watch, that this episode will really appeal to a certain listener out there who appreciates the detail that you have, have gone into to create this product. And at the end of the day, we've, we've all said it, you know, no one needs a watch anymore. And Mm-hmm. Okay, pe- people, the, the vast majority of people buy a watch to to tell time or because they think they need one. And yeah, it is useful. But for those of us who live in this world of 
of truly enjoying watches and, and researching the heck out of them and everything. I think that this is hopefully a fascinating look into what it takes to create a watch, the levels of research that you went to and the digging you had to do, which to me is almost Indiana Jones like, and <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's just absolutely fascinating. And you've been able to, you know, put some of your personal beliefs into the watch and, and make it all come together. So for that, I congratulate you. And I, I truly hope that things continue to go well. Yeah. Thank you. I also hope so. And we will, if this, I mean, it's, I think that we will find our customers with these watches and then we will go on. A lot of fascinating models to, to go. go. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Martin, I want to thank you again for spending this time and look forward to an accompanying article with some live shots uh, taken by our team up in the uh, Fortello headquarters um, that yeah really show off the looks of this watch. And uh, Super. I'm really thank you looking again. forward to that. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And with that, folks, um, we'll talk to you next week on our normal podcast between Balash and I. But again, Martin, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Thanks, and you too. Okay. Bye.